Notice, though, how in this passage, Peter begins this address. He says, finally, all of you. All of you. It's no secret that the last few passages that we've gone through in 1 Peter, Peter has addressed a very particular set of people in each passage. In chapter 2, he discusses how citizens are to relate to the government. And then also in chapter 2, he described how slaves were to submit to their masters, either just or unjust. And then what we saw two weeks ago when I preached last was how is it that wives relate to husbands and how is it that husbands relate to wives. And so he's been addressing very specific groups of people And even though they were specific groups of people, we were able to glean some truths that were applicable for everyone. But here in this particular passage, the audience has been opened up to include every single Christian. Then, and I would say now, all of you. Finally, all of you. I used to have a pastor at the church that I I grew up in 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 Talladega. He would make a big deal any time that the text used the word all. Any time the text used the word all, he'd make a very big deal about that. And he would say every time, all means all. And that's all, all means. Kind of a tongue twister. All means all, and that's all, all means. And he would ask us. Sometimes he would say that, and sometimes he would say, so what does all mean? And we'd respond, all. You know. And so he made a big deal. And I think this is a place, a good place for us to also make a very good, very big deal out of that word, all. I think it's important here to see that Peter is no longer addressing a specific group of Christians, but he is addressing all Christians. And so that's what makes the virtues that he's listing here are essential for all Christians. He's not just saying husbands and wives or those who are under this particular authority. He's saying all Christians can put on these particular virtues. And then the goal for which these virtues aim, the goal for which they look is to bless. Look at verse 9. After he lists the five virtues that we'll look at in a minute, he says that in verse 9, he says, but on the contrary talking about not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So to bless, he says, is what you as all Christians, as all of you, were called to do. So you may be able to to truthfully say, I'm not called to be an international missionary. You may be able to say, I'm not called to, to work as a, as a pastor or a minister, you may say, I'm not called to sing in the, the praise team or, or the choir, but you can be for sure that you are called to bless others. That is a command given to all Christians, and I would say in all times, to bless others. He says, for this you were called. So the commands given here are to have harmony, sympathy, love, a tender heart, and humility. These Five virtues, I would say, are essential to all believers. And then the big idea that I want us to think about this morning, the the main point that I want us to to be thinking about as we dig through this word, is that one of the most essential things that Christians can do, that Christians are called to do, is to bless others. One of the most essential things that all Christians are called to do is to bless others. And the way in which we bless others stems out of these virtues. And many people have made the case that verse 8 relates to how we relate to one another in the church. So make the case that verse 8 and these virtues is how we relate to one another in the church. And then verse 9, when it says, Do not repay repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, that's then how we relate to those outside the church. And I agree that that seems to be the case here. However, with that being said, I think the central command of both of these, verse 8 and 9, is to bless And then the context of verse 8 is how to bless within the church. 
And then verse 9 is how to bless in the context of the unbelieving world. And I believe there's going to be some overlap between the two. You know, I believe there's sometimes when you're going to be in church and you're going to have to practice these virtues in a way to respond to someone reviling you, even within the church, or someone who does you wrong, even in the church. And that's because we're an imperfect church, and the church is made up of imperfect people. So I do believe there is some overlap between the two. Um, and so as we look through these, I want us to see that they address how we relate to one another and also eventually how we relate to those outside the church. So let's first look at these virtues that Christians have called, or that Peter has called Christians to have unity, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humility. Many commentators have noticed a pattern that I want to point out that I think will help us break these virtues down. And, and with the pattern is what's called a, a chiasm. And that is where there are particular order of traits or virtues or even a story being told. And what we see is that there's a variant to that point. This is very hard to describe verbally. So what I'm going to do is just show you what it looks like. Because you see it here. So you see, see unity and humility in the list of the order. They're opposite of each other. And then there's sympathy and a tender heart. And then there's brotherly love. So we, what this kind of, the point this kind of drives is that the things that are opposite of each other work together. So humility and unity working together. A tender heart and sympathy working together. And all those things focused around this idea of brotherly love. Or what we might call Christian love. Or love for one another within the church. So what we're going to do is we're going to start from the middle and work our way out. So then the, fo the focus of this, of these virtues, the, what we might say the most important virtue is, is brotherly love. We're going to start there and work our way out. Uh, this pattern implies then that this is the emphasis of how we are to relate to one another within the church. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's, it's perhaps the most known passage about love. And we are especially familiar with verses... Four through seven, you hear those at weddings. You probably have those on your wall somewhere at your house where it says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it goes on. But I want you to hear what Paul says just before those verses in verses one through three. It may not be quite as quotable, but I think it's maybe more powerful. This is what Paul says in verses one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Those are, those are strong words. And I think what Paul is getting at is that perhaps... Love is the most basic, fundamental demonstration of our salvation. That if we don't demonstrate it, if we don't demonstrate love for one another in our church and even outside the church to outsiders, then we simply have not been born again. I don't know how else Paul could say, without love, I am nothing. Without love, I am and I have nothing. He goes on later in that passage in verse 13 to say, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. The greatest of these is love. So our love for one another then is on the basis of that in our salvation, God loved us. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because He first loved 
us. So because Jesus has loved us, we can then have love for our church. We can have love for one another. And we can also love those outside the church. We can even love those who we're going to see in verse 9 speak against us, who we might call our enemies. So then the basis for our brotherly love and the basis for every other virtue that we could have as a Christian is that Jesus has first loved us and he has first showed us that great love. So now let's look to the two middle virtues, sympathy and a tender heart. Sympathy and a tender heart. Now a tender heart basically it means compassion. Lots of other translations uh, translate this word as compassion. So we can think of it either, either way. way as a tender heart or to just simply have compassion. So sympathy and compassion or a tender heart they certainly go hand in hand. And you might would say that sympathy is to feel what someone else feels or to see at least how someone is feeling, but then to show compassion is then, or to have a tender heart towards that, is to act upon that understanding of someone's position, of someone's situation. We see these two virtues most clearly in the incarnation and life of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus then is able to sympathize with us because he has taken on flesh. He has seen what it feels like to be tempted. He has seen what it feels like to experience physical pain and to hurt and to feel sorrow and to be sad. He has put on all those things, yet he has done so without sin. Because he did so without sin, he was able to go beyond just sympathy. He went beyond just feeling bad for us and then was able to say, I'm going to show you compassion. I'm going to have a tender heart towards you by dying on the cross for our sin and providing a way for us to have life in him. That was the difference in just having sympathy for us and having compassion or a tender heart for us. Sympathy and compassion or a tender heart then have everything to do with how we relate to one another in our church. I relate to one another within uh, the church of Jesus between believers. And I think the reason that we have to be reminded of this, to be sympathetic and to be compassionate towards one another, is because the church is made up of very different believers. The church is made up of very different believers. Think about the universal church, big picture church. God's Word tells us that it, there's going to be in heaven people of every color of every nation, of every tribe, every tongue. And so there's this huge variety to the church. But then even think about our local church. We may not seem that diverse just by looking. But if you think about, I mean, think about how diverse we are in age. Think about that. I mean, what other voluntary gathering of people would you see someone, you know, with five and six-year-olds and also see, you know, 80 and 70-year-olds in the same gathering where else would that take place besides in the church? And so because that's the case, because the gospel is a call to all people and is a call to every age and to every color and every language, because that's the case, then we have to be able to have sympathy and compassion on one another. Because if we were all exactly the same, if this was just a group of, of, of white 24-year-olds who all had the exact same thoughts as I did, there wouldn't be the need for sympathy and compassion because we just all agree all the time. But because there is this call for sympathy because there is diversity in our church, then there is this need to have compassion on one another and sympathy and to say, let me look into your life. Let me see. Show me the problems that you're facing. And then 
have compassion on those problems. Be willing to help and to advocate for someone who is having those same those problems, those issues that someone might face. And it's not just problem. The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and then to weep with those who weep. And so it's two-layered. We are able to sympathize in that we weep with someone, but also we have joy with each other. We're able to, to, to have joy and to fellowship with each other when something good happens as well. So now that we've seen love as the center and we've seen sympathy and a tender heart flowing out of that, Let's now look to the outer two virtues, unity and humility. Unity and humility. These two might not be quite as obviously linked together, so let's look at them one by one and then see how they fit together. So first thing about about unity. The way that our text has translated it is to say unity of mind. And I think to say unity of mind carries the tone that, that we're to be unified intellectually, that our, our minds, the way, we, the way we think, in some ways at least, are to be unified together. Whereas to say to love or to have sympathy or to have compassion is kind of more than an emotional unity. But here we see an intellectual unity that we're to have with believers. I think this includes believing central truths about the gospel and having the same goal with those truths. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But then that passage goes on to describe, I think, what it means to have this one mind. Because in the passage, basically, is a summary of the gospel. And you see key truths about the gospel. God, uh, and in that passage, you see where, where Jesus has stepped down from his equality with God and became man. And he, his death on a cross, his humility, his glorification... So it seems that that passage in Philippians is saying to have this mind among yourselves, and that means to believe these central truths about Jesus. Believe the gospel of Jesus. To be unified in our understanding of the gospel. And this is so necessary for the church to function well. Because there's going to be times in our church where we're going to have disagreements about certain things. And even disagreements about certain theological truths. And there are times when it's okay for us to have those disagreements. There are times where we can both be, we can be saying different things, but still be in what we call orthodoxy, still be in the realm of what the Bible says to be true, but not quite agree on the application of a certain thing. So to have a unity of mind doesn't mean that we all have to be completely 100% the same thinking all the time. But there are truths in scriptures that do, that do require us to rally around, to be unified around particular truths, and those truths primarily are the gospel and how we relate to it and how we are to share the gospel. Around these truths, we're to have unity of mind if we're going to accurately proclaim the gospel to the world and if we're going to be a healthy church. The call for unity, though, implies there's going to be disunity. It implies that the natural way for us to go would be to, to disagreement. And like I say, there's times where we're going to disagree on important matters, but there's also times where we're going to disagree on completely unbiblically related and unimportant matters. I mean, think about something we could disagree on, such as, you know, the color of, of the carpet, if we try to replace the carpet, or if we were to disagree on what color to paint the walls, or how to spend this particular budget, this extra money, or, or when should we have VBS, and all these different things that we could disagree on. And that's where we see the importance of humility, because 
Humility allows us to put our desires and our interests below others. We say, you know, I may be wrong about that. Maybe, maybe that color is better for the wall, for the carpet. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So through humility, we're able to, to put others above ourselves. Think about how Jesus did this first and foremost, about how in His incarnation and in His humbling Himself to the point of death, He put us before Himself. The, the, the one who was God, who was the one who all things, all life was given through, He laid His own life down. I think that's the ultimate picture of humility. And He did it not thinking much of Himself and instead counted our lives as more significant than His own. This is the humility that we ought to strive for. Think of how this kind of humility, this sacrificial humility, this, this laying ourselves as less important than others and putting our interests aside, think of how often that would solve controversies in the church. Think about the, the unimportant agreement that we might have and how we can say, you know what, that's not that big of a deal. We can say, I, I, can, I can say that my opinion is not that important when it comes to the carpet or when it comes to this or that. But then also think about a serious controversy that we could have. Think about a controversy that, that is either theological or, or has, is fundamental to the way our church operates. Something where your own convictions may be biblically rooted but still against someone else in a time where you actually can't back down from your own thoughts and your own opinion. If we can even approach those with humility, if we can come to those disagreements with humility, then even if we can't come to an agreement, we can at least still love one another. We can at least still say, uh, I love you, and I, I, I still want to be a part of this church and fellowship with you. Because there are times when, when there are issues that aren't of the utmost importance, aren't of this first-tier importance. And when that's the case, it's okay to have a different opinion as long as we have it with humility. Because pride says, no, I am right, and it must go my way. You must think the way I think, or else you are entirely wrong. But humility says, even if I think I am right, I do not have to have my own way. And you can see that a humble mind then fosters and protects the unity of the church. It's interesting that, that Peter says unity of mind and a humble mind. It just shows that link together to where this humil humility that we could have fosters and protects the unity that our church has. And so while we won't always live out these truths perfectly, these virtues perfectly, uh, these five essential virtues of Christianity allow us to have and maintain peace within our church. They teach us how to relate to one another, how to express love towards one another, and how to bless one another. And once we put these virtues into practice within our church, I think we can then be equipped to put them to practice outside of our church. So following the list of virtues, look at verse 9. Peter tells Christians how to address those who do evil and who revile. Let's, let's read that verse again. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. So the response then that Christians ought to have is to bless rather than to curse. 
And so like I said, I do think that Peter is addressing now those outside the church. But like we said, there's often times where this is going to overlap to where you're going to have to repay evil for, for blessing and revival and reviling for blessing even within the church. So our response to, to any kind of cursing that someone might, might do to us, any kind of evil and wrong that someone might do to us is to bless. Our response then, whether it's from inside or outside the church, is to bless. So then the question is, how do we do that? What does that even mean, to, to bless? It doesn't give us necessarily a word for word of what it means to bless. I think it's more than just saying, bless your heart. And I think it's more than just spitefully saying, I'll pray for you. I think it's something much more than that. And in God's word, we see, I think, two amazing examples of how we do this, how we return reviling and evil with blessing. Think about, first and foremost, Jesus at the cross. He says, to the men, or about the men who were literally killing him, Father, Father, or Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then another example is in Stephen, who was martyred for his faith. And while being stoned, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So what then was it? that both Jesus and Stephen were praying for about those who were killing them. He was praying for their salvation. That's the only way that the Father could forgive the sins of those who killed Jesus. And it's the only way that those who killed Stephen could not have their sin held against them as if they came to Jesus in faith and received salvation. So the way in which Jesus and Stephen blessed those who were literally trying to kill them was by praying for their salvation praying for them to come to Jesus. And in both cases, it seems at least that this happened, that, that we see someone turn to Jesus who was there and who was doing this evil against Jesus and Stephen. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, one of the Roman soldiers who was there at the, the death of Jesus, who likely participated in it and, and helped it, he says, after seeing Jesus breathe his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, we don't know anything else about this man, but it seems as though something has changed in this man's life that caused him to say, this man was the Son of God. And in Acts, the very next verse after Stephen prays that prayer, we read this. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul was present there. Saul was one of the ones in which Stephen might have been praying for as he prayed this prayer. And then, of course, not, not even two chapters later, we read, of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And so these are extreme cases of evil. These are perhaps the most evil things that could happen. And even in those cases, Jesus and Stephen were able to respond with blessing rather than reviling. And didn't return evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but blessed. And we almost certainly will never face anything this severe. We're almost certainly never going to be stoned or, or crucified but we will face evils, and we'll definitely face reviling. Think about your day-to-day -day life at work or at school, on teams, those kind of things. There's often times where someone's going to just simply do you wrong. That's just a fact of life, that eventually there's going to be people who disappoint you, who do you wrong, who, who betray your trust, who do some sort of evil against who gossip about you. And we're called to respond to those things with the same kind of faith that Stephen has showed, faith 
that allows us to pray for their salvation. To say, you know, I don't hate you. Instead, I love you and I'm praying for you and, I, and you genuinely pray for their salvation. And if we think about it, what it takes for us to do this, what it takes for us to be able to repay, repay with blessing rather than evil is to apply the same virtues that we've seen in verse 8 that we talked about as inside the church and apply those to outside the church. Think about it. We have unity with unbelievers in that we're all made in God's image and we're all in need of salvation. We can have sympathy and tenderheartedness uh, and that allows us to see our enemy's need for salvation. That allows us to see and to care for them, and then love allows us to muster up what it takes to actually do that, to actually pray for them, to actually seek their own salvation. And then finally, humility reminds us that we're not where we are on our own. Humility reminds us that we are here not by our own works, but by the grace of God. So we can apply these virtues even to those who have harmed us, even to those who speak against us. And doing that will help us to do what we're commanded to do, and that is to bless to repay evil and reviling with blessing. Again, not, not just to spitefully say, I'm praying for you, or God bless your heart, but to say, to literally pray for, for their salvation and to seek the salvation of those who are against us. And I think that's what it means to bless, and that's how we're called to bless those outside the church. So now having looked at these essential virtues and Having seen the call to bless others, I want us to look at the end of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9 and also verse, all the way through verses 12. Let's read those again. It says, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. For his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what we see is that according to this passage, there is a link between blessing and receiving a blessing. Bless that you may obtain a blessing. There is a link between watching the way that we speak to others and having a peaceable life, a peaceful life. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. There's a link between doing good and turning from evil and having our prayers heard from God and being called righteous. Or on the contrary, there's a link between doing evil and having God against us. At first glance, it may sound like Peter is teaching a work-based salvation. And you are right to cringe if that's how you heard that, if that's how that sounded to you. But remember that Peter is well aware that our salvation is not based on what we do, on our works. First Peter, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So then the link that Peter is making in these statements isn't that our good actions and, and blessing lead or cause our salvation. Instead, the point that he's making is that it is evidence of our salvation. That's the link that he's making is that our good works and our returning blessing for reviling and our keeping evil from our tongue is not how we become righteous, but it is a result of us being declared righteous. It is a demonstration of our faith. It is the evidence of our salvation. But nevertheless, 
in that psalm that he quotes, that's Psalm 34 that he's quoting there in verse 10, there is an, an invitation and a warning. For the righteous there is salvation and there's prayers who, they get answered. And for the evil, the face of God is against you. The truth is that all of life, all life is lived under the eyes of God, either good or bad, either righteous or evil. All life, everything that we do is lived under the eyes of God. But the, and He demands nothing less than righteousness. But the basis of our righteousness, however, is not our own works, but it's the work of Christ. He first showed us these virtues before we could ever put them on. He showed us love and humility and compassion and sympathy and unity and that He came down and became man with us. And He showed us all those things in His life and His death and His willingness to give us life through His death. And the truth is that, that apart from grace, we revile against God. We do evil against God. But God has chose not to repay our evil with evil. And He has chose not to repay our reviling with reviling. Instead, He has laid that consequence of sin on the back of Jesus at the cross. And in return for our reviling, for our evil, He gives us righteousness. Those who have put their trust in Jesus, He has returned our reviling, our, our wicked ways, our evil with righteousness. And on the basis of that love that Jesus had for us, we then are to love and to bless others. We're to live in unity within the church and we're to pray for the salvation of those outside the church. We're to seek and demonstrate the love of Jesus. In a moment, we'll have a hymn of invitation. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never received that blessing of eternal life that only Jesus can give, then it's not saying do better. I'm not saying do these things to, to be righteous. The truth is, no matter how many good works we do, we cannot obtain righteousness on our own. We need the love of Jesus, and we need His sacrifice for our sin by putting our trust in Him. We need to first and foremost receive the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, thank You for this time that we've had to open Your Word. I pray that these truths would be impressed on our heart, dear God, that we would be able to demonstrate these virtues to one another within our church, dear God, but also to those outside the church, that they might see, uh, see you, dear God, that might be drawn to you, dear God. Allow us to be vessels uh, through which your gospel is spread, dear God, and uh, allow us to draw near to you. And all these things I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.